This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Marie Caracas. Marie is the Director of Young Mind Psychology, a specialist psychology practice supporting autistic children adolescents and their families. She also supervises a number of psychologists and has presented on various topics for postgraduate psychology training programs. In this episode, Marie shares her personal insights on working with autistic or neurodiverse young people and treating OCD. You'll hear why she was drawn to working with young people and something that's very close to my heart, why she believes creativity and play are so important when treating autistic people with co-occurring OCD. Let's get started. Uh, Marie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really, really delighted to have you join us to have a chat about your work. We know that you have a really interesting story about your work with young people. What age ranges do you work with? Oh, well, good question. Because if you'd asked me that question a number of years ago, I would have probably given you a different answer to now. So initially, I set out to work with school-aged and preschool-aged young people. So that's typically, you know, preschool, I'd say I'd usually do assessments and start around three to four years of age up until about 18 when young people left school. But I've soon discovered how important those years soon after high school are and how another change in potentially seeing a new practitioner is not ideal. And I've had the privilege really of having people over a long period of time, come back on a needs basis and see them from even potentially like early primary to now, like mid to late high school, or if I started with them in high school, they're now in their early to mid twenties. So I would say I would follow a similar approach to like a Kim's or a Cam's model where it's young people, but really in their formative years. So about, I, I wouldn't take on a new referral of someone as an established adult, but someone, you know, soon out of high school or high school yeah that's fine and of course I go as young as you know I've done assessments for young people as young as three or two so that's sort of the age range and if I do deal with adults it's more from a parenting support capacity for seeing their child. How interesting tell us a little bit more about yourself about the work you do and how you got into it. Well, actually, my friends from high school would laugh because I picked psychology. Like, oh, that's interesting. That's like sounds a bit different. It's not your typical maths and English. And I remember in year 11, I used to say, oh, there is no way I'm picking that in year 12. Like it is just theory after theory. And then my close girlfriends just laughs that I'm doing psychology. And I never derailed from it at any point. I always knew I wanted to work with young people. And I had an interest in psychology. So even after my fourth year, I actually applied for a grad dip in primary teaching because I was just unsure about, am I best suited one-on-one? Am I best suited in a group? I soon discovered that I'm probably better in a more intimate one-on-one circumstance. I think put your hats off to teachers. It's a pretty hard gig. And then when I did my doctorate, of Ed and Dev, because naturally I wanted to work with young people. And at the time that was the one that was quite 
tailored for the developmental years. I was just interested in a lot of things. So, you know, we did a topic on learning difficulties, I'd be interested in that. We did a topic on anxiety, interested in that. So I I guess I left the postgraduate degree with lots of interest, especially after placements, you get exposed to so many different areas. I always had an interest in working with neurodiverse young people. I found it really interesting and intriguing, but it was alongside a lot of other interests. And I think it was potentially like a lot of people in the field. You you start out at a job, the couple of jobs you get in the early years, and you just have cases that really capture your interests that you might have some early successes with and then you do some more PD on that area and then all of a sudden you're getting people referring to you or teachers saying you know this is you you worked with this little Johnny for example and now there's little Timothy over there and, and he's got similar needs you can help it just kind of wasn't purposeful it just sort of happened so I worked in a range of school settings and a clinical setting with Kim's as well so that was through like the placements and then I got jobs in school setting the Catholic and the educational department I then got a job at school as well so I had two schools an independent school and then the Catholic school then I just got so busy that I had to sort of drop one just to focus on one and then friends said oh why don't you just work privately in this clinic and I was like oh no no I don't know if I'm ready I'm a couple of years out and I work for someone else and then I just felt like for my own self-care it might be good for me to have a bit more control over my caseload and so I really just sort of said I'll just do a small little private practice you know just me I'll work a couple of days and then I'll have my school and then that got too busy and so then I had to go (laughs) I didn't have to but I I made the choice to go full-time into private work then here we are just certain referrals, certain cases, get asked to present and support undergraduate students. And then, yeah, you're sort of working more in the neurodiverse population. I do see neurotypical young people as well, but I would say I do have an overwhelming proportion of my caseload is young people on the spectrum, young people with ADHD and learning difficulties and that whole mix that can commonly co-occur. And yes, OCD definitely is a significant flavor in there too, because anxiety was definitely there as well. So yeah, it's just kind of evolved, just certain passions and then it's just evolved. Why has that been such a passion for you? I find young people who have that profile just so fascinating and interesting and it's so endearing to see them when they're within their passions and I certainly don't always get it right but I feel like sometimes I get it. I get how they can present one way in one setting and then very differently in another and it is more about our understanding of their needs and thankfully there's been even just in my career lifetime there have been so many changes in this headspace there's been in a lot of fields but oh geez look I mean I had to remember I was I was talking to a colleague that the DSM-4 which was around when I first started out I'm fairly sure correct me if I'm wrong if you guys remember this but like you couldn't diagnose ADHD and ASD at the same time and so like now it's just seen as just such a common co-occurrence this is so much has changed even the way we think about things and whether we intervene with something or it's about us accepting that that for example a stim is just something that they used to regulate so I find it interesting I find it fascinating I find it really rewarding that's why I've liked to stay in this field for our listeners can you elaborate a little bit about what stim is 
So a stim is seen as any type of repetitive behaviour that helps a person regulate an emotion. Now, previously, it was seen as often linked to a negative emotion. Someone's really upset, they're rocking, or they're highly distressed, they're hand flapping. But we can have that for positive emotions as well. And it's often a self-regulatory behaviour to cope with that strong emotion going on in their body. So, yeah. Okay, so... I guess then when we're working with a neurodiverse population who might also have comorbid OCD, if we were assessing or treating, how would we differentiate between what you've just described versus compulsions that we typically see, which are also repetitive behaviors that are performed in response to emotions? Yeah. So I'll just say that that's a really important question. I probably get that asked quite frequently when I supervise other psychs about, Marie, is this autism? Is this OCD? How can I tell the difference? Distinguishing between the two is a bit tricky because inherently on surface level, it looks similar. I would say the first thing I look for, and whether you do this over time or through some sort of clinical interview, is trying to ascertain what the function of that behavior is for that client. So, you know, it does help if you can unpack that emotion behind it, that can give us some clues. So typically, if it's linked to a positive emotion, and and that that emotion then helps the self-regulatory behavior, and it helps them sort of cope with that moment, and then it leaves them and there's no sort of residual negative affect about it, then I'm leaning towards it that that's more like a, a neurodiverse or an autism related repetitive behavior, wherein typically in an OCD presentation, there is a level of distress associated with the ongoing performance of compulsions or the need to. Also, the level of obsessional thinking that can be linked to a repetitive behavior. So in addition to the function, typically that's not present in a neurodiverse population. So I'm saying this a bit hesitantly because sometimes it is hard to ascertain if that's there. One common thing that can be a bit of an obstacle for people on the spectrum is that pragmatic language communication and that concept of interoception. So one communicating thoughts and feelings and things that are going on for them in the moment and also picking up on their body's internal information, whatever it might be. And so just by those two descriptions, trying to then articulate certain intrusive thoughts or urges That might take a bit of time, that might need a lot of support, or that might be really just hard for the client. So if it's not and it's not there, then you can sort of assume that it's it's more likely to be linked to an autism presentation. But if that's there, then that's something that you need to explore further and see whether those resultant behaviours are linked to an OCD presentation. The tricky thing that happens is when we have both and a client has some repetitive behaviors that are for self-regulatory or whether it's a stim or self-soothing behavior and that some are more obsessional and have that you know level of distress and it's a means of sort of negating or getting rid of these intrusive thoughts or feelings or urges and it's just hard to untangle that and to add a little bit more complication to it is sometimes things change. So once a certain behavior might have been self-regulatory, but as they've gotten older, it's potentially transformed into a compulsion that has developed with 
time with anxiety and with their presentation. Wow, there are just so many layers and there's just so much complexity and so many things to keep in mind. Yeah, it, look, it's really interesting work. If we had a neurotypical person who was coming to counselling and to come to the psychologist to work on certain behaviours, OCD behaviours that were intruding with their life, that's still really tricky when they are clearly able to articulate what they're thinking and feeling because it's so persistent and relentless and there's just that being vulnerable and are they going to think you know is he or she going to think I'm really crazy by, by saying some of these thoughts that are going through my mind so you've got that and then you add a level of potential communication difficulty with it it just makes it really tricky but it just reaffirms how important it is to continually refine the function of what this behavior is serving for this client and that kind of keeps you grounded as to where you would head with supporting them. So it sounds like spending a lot of time on assessment, formulating and really understanding what the function is, as you're describing, is almost your compass in treatment. Yeah, because it can take some time for them to even feel comfortable to talk about it, to be able to talk about it, to have the capacity or insight to talk about it. And in the neurodiverse world, often something else might pop up. So you might feel that we need to attend to this. We, you know, this could start to become quite a potentially debilitating aspect for their independence or their functioning. But there might be something that just circumvents that with their schooling might deteriorate or something else and, and you just have to attend to that and then get back to it. Yeah, it is this constant level of formulation and assessment, yes. You've mentioned so eloquently, as Celine surmised before, you know, the need for the constant assessment, curiosity, thoughtfulness, discussion about your client's experience and the functionality behind it. But it also sounds like you're saying that there are a number of things to hold in mind that make working with clients who have OCD as well as autism, for example, that there are a number of things that you need to hold in mind. You've mentioned pragmatic language and about the communication barriers that exist. What else do you think clinicians need to hold in mind when treating OCD with someone who has neurodevelopmental difficulties? It's a good question. Definitely the pragmatics stands out for me. That's the first and foremost. And so much so that if that's really a big barrier, I would refer to a speech pathologist if there isn't one in the team to assist with that, to help make more progress in your sessions. Another important consideration is patience and having quite a lot of that because it can be very hard to articulate these things or be aware of these things in a certain way with the thinking styles, you know, whether it's certain sort of right or wrong to think about this. So like, for, for example, there was a client of mine, a young person who went through a bad time and a parent of theirs said, something to the effect of if we can't help or we can't get to the bottom of this, we might need to take things a bit further. And I think that was all that was said. But the client then interpreted, well, then that's hospital and then that's Marie. <laughs> and so when none of those words were either mentioned, 
And, and as we know, that it's not really a case of a psychologist saying that's, that's what you need to do. And that's certainly not our first point of call anyway. And so it actually took six months for that to come out about a certain intrusive thought that was there that was blocking more disclosure. And so sometimes with pragmatic language, there's some difficulties with that higher order thinking skills with interpreting what another person Everything in my behavior was really not likely that I would pull someone against their will and really discuss a hospital admission. Deep down, this client knew that, but there was just this rule in their mind that, oh my goodness, I can't disclose that I'm having really dark thoughts because then there might be the risk of us doing that. And then Marie's a psychologist, so it must be her that would be doing that. And once we unpacked that and we said, oh, oh wow, like we had no idea. Thank you so much for being so brave to tell us that. But that's a typical example of where certain thinking styles can even block something from coming out a bit more organically in therapy. Look, there's always the sensory component as well to be, you know, curious of. I know enough, but I'm obviously not an OT. It's not something we're specifically trained in. So you can know enough to know when something might need to be investigated. Is that actually some form of hypo or hypersensitivity regarding one of their senses? And is that underlying that? So that's another consideration to take into account. You usually have a team around young people. And so it's pretty uncommon for me not to have a young person that just has their GP. I, I would usually have a speech pathologist or an OT or maybe both. There's often a pediatrician involved at some description or a psychiatrist if they're older. And it's just so nice to sort of, if you feel a bit stumped or unsure about what the presentation is, to sort of collaborate. So one of the big things I say with my supervisees is, you know, get those connections happening in this field. It's really important. Sometimes you get really curly presentations. You're just not sure where to put your treatment. Having a team behind you will really help with your work as well. So get a team, be patient, take your time, hold in mind the complexity of the formulation and of the diverse range of difficulties that they have, hold in mind communication difficulties and play, have fun. It sounds like the way that you work is actually where the client is at, be with what they're bringing you, have a plan, but play around a bit, be patient. You know, am I picking that up? Yes, spot on. Like you've really got to get into their world and whatever it is that is their passion, their interest, that is tip 101 for working with neurodiverse young people. It is getting into their world. And, you know, I've learned so many weird and wonderful things. I was being taught about axolotls the other week (laughs) and um, I had no idea what they were. And I know so much about them now. And, And it was just really endearing to see that level of facts and interest and then use that. So whatever therapeutic modality you are going to use for that particular client or approach or what what part of the process is a psychoeducation, is it the exposure that you need to work on? If you can link it in to something that they're passionate about, you have a much higher level of buy-in and engagement and it really does go such a long way. So that would be my final sort of consideration. What might that look like? 
So in the early days when we didn't have so many, oh gosh, I'm showing my age a little bit, when we didn't have <laughs> iPads and, you know, like there's all these really cool apps that you could do things quickly on. I'd just search the internet and whether it was doing a chart, I'd search for pictures and do whatever. Like if they needed to achieve something, I'd link it to something on whether it be Minecraft or whatever it is. If we were doing psychoed, I would be like, all right, they really like their technology, which to be honest with you, what young person doesn't. I'm not going to talk to them about it. Like they'll be kind of polite-ish and some might not be, but, you know, like they'll sort of (laughs) listen, but let's go on the computer and let's look at that together. Even something as small as if it's not necessarily directly related, it's not always easy to directly relate something of their interest to therapy. Just spend part of your session interested. You know, in an ideal case, I would do that at the end. (laughs) So we get a bit more, but you just got to be flexible. You got to read where the client's at. And sometimes like a 50 minute session might just be too overwhelming for them to be talking about certain topics that we would love to explore. You've got to really sort of see, well, I'm going to get 15 minutes of real insight or gems, and I'm going to compensate that with the topics that may not look like therapy, but are therapy in building a connection. I will say that once you have a connection with someone on the spectrum, you usually have really, you've you've got them. And that part of the diagnostic criteria is don't like change. So uh, there's that aspect there too, but it is a very special connection that you make with your clients. That sounds pretty awesome. And it's really just like such a nice way to hear about how we can really be creative with therapy because, you know, at uni we get taught all the manualized treatments and when we start out we tend to hide behind lots of handouts and (laughs) session preparation and all of this sort of stuff. So it's just so nice to hear that while those things are important at the same time, we can bring our own personality in there as well and really connect with our client, which I guess leads us into a next question. What is something you know now that you wish you knew when you were first starting out in working with not just neurodiverse populations, but also when we're dealing with comorbid OCD or any other comorbidity really? I really wish I had a better grapple on that whole sense of mindfulness and it, you know it's not simply relaxation it's learning to tolerate distress and sit with that so I, I look back maybe that little teacher Jean my mum's a teacher so that I sort of want I used to give my early when I um, was in placements I used to give like a little summary if I left a school or if I was finishing up with someone I'd copy little bits of things that we did so they remembered it and put it in a little folder whatever we learned if we did a coping cards And I wish, because we've talked about distraction and things like that, but I guess there's so much more awareness now of teaching young people to not push away or distract or try to find a solution sometimes to fix something that is more about us sitting with that, learning that we can be strong enough to sit with that. So, I mean, I personally, I found that quite profound for myself, but I've, yeah, that's what I would have wished when I was early on in my career. Do you find then that you're doing a lot of reteaching to clients that might have seen other clinicians or 
might have read things online and all that sort of stuff and you have to kind of reteach these concepts for what they actually are or like they might have done it at school. Like I know Tori and I run an adolescent group for teenagers who are experiencing OCD and when we get to the mindfulness component, they're like, oh, why? (laughs) (laughs) We do this at school. It doesn't work. (laughs) And so we spend a lot of time having to reteach what it's actually about. Do you find that as well? A lot. So when you started off that question, I was even thinking of myself. So for some clients that I've had when I've been really fortunate to have some people over a very big part of their lives. And so I'm looking back and thinking, oh, okay, I'm almost going to reteach some things that I've may have said 10 years ago, because I do have clients that I've had for 10 years. But yes, they hear mindfulness and they think of just whether it's, oh, it doesn't work for me. I'll get that. Or deep breathing. I've mindfully eaten chocolate. It's, it's, it's fine. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, can we just go a little bit deeper about that? That can be a bit of a blocker with some young people on the spectrum who, if they've shut something out of their mind, it, it can be hard to really get that back in there and try to see that as an option, which is where the discussion about working on the relationship is really key. You have more leverage with any client really. doesn't really seem unique to the autism spectrum, but if you can push a little bit more and open up some things that they might have shut off a bit more. A big part of what I know we're always doing when we're working with clients with OCD is educating about intrusive thoughts and talking about how intrusive thoughts are normal. It's a part of the human experience. It's because of the way that our brain is designed and teaching uh, our clients to tolerate the presence of intrusive thoughts. And I know that Celine and I, in our work, we often self-disclose our own intrusive thoughts. Just to normalize that, you know, just how common they are. Do you have intrusive thoughts you'd be willing to share? Okay, you have all day. (laughs) Um, Oh, okay. So I'll give a recent one with all these vaccines and things that are coming out, like maybe not just even the vaccine and COVID, but like I'm I'm sort of prone to, I've read like an odd freak medical story, like someone had no pain and then suddenly they had a mild headache and then it was something that just, they dropped dead the next day. The next time I have... A mild I headache. Laugh. <laughs> I know, but like, I know you shouldn't laugh, but like that will pop into my head. You know, the, the recent one, Rose Why said vaccines is, you know, that there's that a rare side effect, which is apparently the, the heart issues. So now I have my heart, like, you know, since I like a couple week after, I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, is, is that? Oh, I think that was a heart palpitation. Yeah. I don't pay enough attention to look at the facts, but that intrusive thought can really pop in. But since... Oh, facts. What are facts? <laughs> <laughs> Probably since having a daughter two years ago, she's a little bit of a feisty, independent thing. And so she doesn't want to go in the pram. And so we we can, okay, we'll walk. You walk on the sidewalk. It makes walking a little bit longer. But but you just have intrusive images of just not catching her if she runs off. And then you have images of the car running her down. And I don't know if sleep deprivation is also exacerbating that when you have a job. But, you know, certainly there's a whole new chapter that has come from that. I think we all get weird and wonderful intrusive thoughts, scary ones, funny ones, bizarre ones all the time. And Marie, what you're talking about, about how they've evolved since having a daughter is so true, isn't it? We talk a lot about how they link with your values, but it's also so much about what's going on in life and what you're experiencing 
it's just part of the human experience, isn't it? And just what has the world gone through the last two years, really? I mean, if you didn't have many beforehand, the chances of you having a few more than average in the last couple of years is, is probably pretty high. Going back to that link with, you know, when you do have a young person who might be presenting with autism and OCD, certain rules that they may have in their minds about it's not right to think this or this is illegal and therefore I can't say it can sometimes be a blocker to sort of tapping into that trigger for their distress. That makes me think of, again, that what you were talking about before about needing to be really curious about whether that is cognitive inflexibility yeah. or whether it's scrupulosity. Yes. Yeah. And moral themes. You need to be really open-minded, take your time to really tease it apart, to think about what is it that I'm actually seeing here to give you guidance around how you're going to approach it. I think the two things you just said there sums it up perfectly. Being curious and taking your time is the two big things because, I mean, the hardest part about it is to be somewhat across both fairly big areas and then to unpack where the function and what it is that you are potentially hearing or seeing and then the complication arises when there could be both <laughs> as they commonly are i mean you might know the, the stats better than me but last i heard it was it could be even a, a fifth of young people on the spectrum could also fit criteria or have ocd as defined in the dsm that's a fairly big percentage there so times where I felt like it may not work is when we've made an assumption or we've made a quick judgment that can be a difficulty there. So many wonderful insights and I think and I hope and I'm sure I'm speaking for you both agree with me when I say this that people listening today will be taking away so many wonderful gold nuggets to kind of keep in their arsenal of things when they're assessing and working with not just young people who might be neurodivert, like even adults, you know, when they come in with an already existing diagnosis or who might not have been diagnosed because of what you've been saying, Marie, in terms of there are so many similarities that it could easily get missed as they're going through their childhood and adolescent years. Thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful insights with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive-compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word. That's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>